May I have you loud and clear? <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week, we're taking you to the cutting edge of materials science, including out how blacksmiths for years have made incredibly tough swords through to how defence scientists make bulletproof armour today. Plus, news of a better way to manage prostate cancer, how fingerprints might replace chip and pin, and how scientists are using cold lightning to keep fruit fresh for longer. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Every year, tens of thousands of men are diagnosed with cancer of the prostate, the gland that sits at the base of the bladder. But what should they do about their condition? Should they elect to have radiotherapy or possibly surgery and risk the side effects of the treatment? Or should they instead choose just to monitor the disease and treat any symptoms as they occur? Because, in their case, they're actually more likely to die of some other disease before the prostate cancer actually causes a problem for them. This is the quandary faced by patients every day. But now, researchers in Cambridge have developed a predictive tool that uses various measurements from a patient to calculate the benefit to them in terms of how their life expectancy may change if they do or do not decide to treat the disease. It's called Predict Prostate, and Chris went to talk to one of the brains behind it. My name is Vincent Jan Pagasam. I am a consultant urologist at the University of Cambridge. We have produced a new tool that will help men newly diagnosed with prostate cancer to decide whether or not treatment is right for them and to help them make decisions whether these treatments are going to benefit them or whether or not they won't. Prostate cancer is a very common disease and as we men get older, that is a disease which is almost inevitable in some cases. But not all prostate cancers will go on to cause problems or indeed result in cancer-related death. In fact, you're more likely to live with it than to die from it. So we set out to understand what are the attributes of these cancers which we can actually identify, which informs an individual when they're newly diagnosed about whether or not they need treatment up front. When we're considering prostate cancer, how many cases are there in a country of the sort of size of the UK and our population demographic at the moment? Well, at the moment, we are diagnosing approximately 40,000 men with prostate cancer every year. And we know that the data projections are that by 30 years' time, we are going to actually be diagnosing about 70% more. We're also getting much better at picking it up and picking it up in an early stage. And all of this is going to result in many, many men being diagnosed with prostate cancer and potentially living with that diagnosis. One of the questions that always goes with the screening programme is, if we look for something we've got to be able to do something about the thing we're looking for and do something about it in a good way. So do you know that when we do intervene in prostate cancer, we're actually improving the prognosis for that person? We're not just labelling someone, now you've got prostate cancer, now you live with all these side effects we've inflicted on you, but actually we've not really changed the outcome for that person. They're not going to live any longer. So that is at the heart of the PREDICT prostate tool. The key point is what do you do with a new diagnosis? And Predict Prostate was constructed to actually help an individual understand that if you have a new diagnosis, you may need treatment because you can see clear benefits from that. But in some cases, you may not see a huge benefit from that. And it also then gives confidence, we hope, that they can live with that slow-growing indolent cancer, which is unlikely to cause a problem, but they can know that 
with a little bit more surety than just by being told by someone that that's the case. How did you design this model or how did you create this? We took a population data set from the east of England of 10,000 men and we used statistical models which had been developed by our collaborators to actually construct the model. And then we retested it in a cohort from Singapore, which is ethnically different, and showed that the model actually proves to be quite accurate in that setting as well. So what factors specifically about an individual? If, if someone walks into your clinic and you make measurements, what factors are you considering so that the model can make these predictions? One of the basic things we wanted to do was to make it accessible to anyone, anywhere. That means we have to use the clinical data that's available. A patient's age, PSA blood test value. That's prostate-specific antigen. That's, that's a blood marker that can indicate something is up with the prostate, can't it? So you're absolutely correct, and that is used as a detection test. But actually, the level also has some value in predicting outcome. And then we look at the stage, how extensive is the cancer, and what the samples showed when we took the biopsy or, or piece of the prostate, and how many of those biopsies were positive. Those are the essential elements, and they are available in a, any standard consultation. And we were amazed, actually, by how powerful just those simple factors could be if put together in the right way. So you're saying you take those measurements and you can make a prediction of what exactly with those numbers? So what the model is telling you is what the impact of these factors are on someone's overall risk of dying. And so the model tells an individual what the 10 and 15 year survival chances are with and without treatment measured against that. Do you think on the basis of being in this position now with a much more powerful tool that we now have in the form of models like yours, that we should be pushing for some kind of screening program for prostate cancer. Because we have screening programs for breast cancer, we have screening programs for cervical cancer, and they're very effective. But the numbers of people afflicted with those conditions are very low compared to the numbers that you've been saying are affected by prostate cancer. So at what point do you think we need to start saying, well, we need to do something about this? So the paradigm needs to shift. Screening is all about saving lives. So effectively, you, uh, if you look at the mantra about screening, you have to show that an intervention improves survival. And so you have this problem with over-treatment, which is why people don't want to screen for prostate cancer. So I think that if there is an acceptance that you can pick up lots of cancers which don't need treatment, but which you can monitor, and that becomes okay, then I think a screening program will become effective. Some very important work there. That was Vincent Yana Pragasan talking about the work they've just published in the journal PLOS Medicine. You can also try out the predictive tool for yourself. The website is called Predict Prostate. Well, from one good piece of news to another, this is good news for diabetics because researchers have discovered that a family of venomous shellfish called cone snails use a very fast-acting insulin to immobilise their fish prey by causing the animal's target blood sugar to plummet so it can't swim off. Now, a fast-acting insulin like this would be extremely useful for human diabetic patients. And now, by studying several different cone snail species, Helena Safavi and her colleagues have figured out how this insulin works, why it's so rapid in action, and, critically, how we can copy it. Cone snails are all predatory marine snails, so they prey on either worms, snails, or even fish. Um, they're native to the tropics, so they live in beautiful areas. They have wonderful shells. There are about 800 different species, and every single species has a different shell pattern, and they're all very beautiful. 
But we're most interested in the compounds these snails make to prey on other animals. And we've long known they produce compounds that can be used in, in pain relief and pain research. But what we have now found is that um, some of these species actually make insulin and they release that insulin into the water that the, the fish is swimming in. And that insulin causes um, blood sugar to quickly drop and the fish that is exposed to the insulin is not able to swim away anymore. And the cone snail snaps it up and eats it. And once the fish is unable to swim away, the cone snail comes and can just swallow it up. That's extraordinary to think that this thing is, is squirting insulin into the water. So two questions spring to mind. One, why doesn't the cone snail end up with very low blood sugar as well? Or doesn't insulin work in a cone snail? And two, how does the insulin get out of the water and into the fish? It turns out that the insulin, the cone snail, makes it very different to its own insulin. So the snail makes its own insulin to regulate sugar levels in its own body. But the insulin that it sprays into the water um, is extremely similar to the insulin produced by a fish. So it wouldn't be active at its own target receptor. In terms of how it gets into the fish, we think that it rapidly enters the body through the gills. Thing is, though, if you did this with the kinds of insulin that we have in the clinic to give to humans... They're quite slow acting, aren't they? Whereas a venom has to work really fast in order to immobilise a prey really fast. Because these things are shellfish. They wouldn't be able to pursue a fast-moving fish. So this stuff must be quick. How does it do it? The snail has to make sure that the fish is very rapidly immobilised and the insulin acts very rapidly compared to the insulin that we make. And it does that by being a single compound. So our human insulin is very sticky. So an individual insulin would stick very rapidly to another insulin and to another insulin and form so-called hexamers. Um, the snail insulin, because it has to act very rapidly, never forms a hexamer, so it can act much faster than our own insulins do. So when our insulins go into the body, do they have to unstick before they can work then? Whereas what the snails are doing is theirs never stick in the first place, so they're immediately available for action. Yes, that's exactly right. So when we inject or a diabetic patient injects insulin into the body, the hexamer has to first dissociate into a compound that is then can then be active, whereas the snail never made the hexamer in the first place, so it's immediately active. Now, if you know this, um, the obvious question to ask is, well, why don't we just make, with our biotechnology know-how, a form of human insulin which can't stick together like that? That's a very interesting question. So we have actually tried to do this for over 20 years now, and we have not solved this problem because the moment you try to make the human insulin not stick, it's not active anymore. So you strip it of its activity so you could still inject it, but it won't do anything in your body anymore. So somehow the snails have solved this longstanding problem by making this insulin in its venom. So put me out of my misery. What has the snail been able to do? that human industry over the last couple of decades couldn't. It must, it must have discovered some kind of clever trick that we hadn't thought of. Yeah, so we think that it, the snail insulin binds to the human insulin receptor or the fish insulin receptor in a different fashion. So it uses a slightly different surface on the receptor. So the area that it uses to bind to the receptor is a little different to our human insulin. And this is how the snail has solved this. But critically, what that means is that if you can copy what the snail does, you could potentially make a human insulin that's very fast acting and not sticky in that way. So when it went into the human, it would very quickly gain control of their blood sugar. 
Yes, and that's exactly what we're currently trying to do. And we have made very good progress on this that we're planning to hopefully publish soon in the future. So what we've done is to try to learn as much as we can from the snail insulins, the different ones that we have found, and then go back to human insulin and make it non-sticky and yet active. And we have the first compound um, that we're hoping to put into the clinic sometime in the future. Isn't nature an amazing thing? Helena Safavi there, she's at the University of Utah and that research has just come out in the journal eLife. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Izzy Clark. Still to come, how cold lightning can keep food fresh and... I hit where it's colder, it rings more. I hit where it's hotter, duller sound. So you can actually feel by how it's responding, how it's working. We put the blacksmith's work under the microscope to find out what is really going on in the forge. But first, are you someone who's forgotten the pin for your credit or debit card with the usual embarrassing and inconvenient consequences? Well, thankfully, those days may soon be behind you because a card with a built-in fingerprint scanner is on the way. Here to explain is angel investor Peter Cowley. So, Peter, who's behind this work? Yes, hello, Izzy. It's actually a company you probably haven't heard of because these products like this are all done by companies you hear with the consumer. It's a company called Gemalto, or Dutch company, a couple of billion turnover quite a big company and they've just introducing this initially as tech and trialing it where are we hoping we might be able to see this well they've trialed it in several places around the world but it's been an announcement that rbs and natwest are trialing it just with 200 people just for three months okay so n- not too many then how does this actually work yeah so it, it's basically a card as i've got one in my hand that like any card and it's got the chip on it you can't use it contactless because you need the power to run the fingerprint detector so you're putting the card into the reader So then the power comes through from the reader itself. And instead of putting a pin in, you've got your finger or thumb over the reader at the same time. So what they've done is to actually get into the card, which is much less than one millimeter thick. The idea behind it is that you're using your fingerprint or your thumbprint instead of a pin. Now, the advantage of that is that pins are obviously forgotten, as you say. My late father used to keep his pin attached to his card. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also the the pin itself, you're probably not aware, but the pin can be stored on the card, but it also can be stored remotely. So there's a possibility the pin can be intercepted, whereas the fingerprint will be stored purely on the card in the same way as it is in your phone, if you've got a fingerprint recognition on your phone. How secure is this, though? Well, this is a good question. In fact, I don't know if you're aware, and Chris might be aware, that even identical twins do not have the same fingerprint. And it turns out it's because there's a level of nurture, rather than nature, i.e. how long the umbilical cord is even, (laughs) whether the fingerprint changes. So we are all unique, basically. I was just going to ask you how the fingerprint scanner works, because there are several ways to scan fingerprints, aren't there? There's just the the mundane way of taking a picture, which is pretty easy to fool. And then there's the way that most phones work, which is they're measuring the electrical capacitance. But then there's this newfangled way, which is it it stores an ultrasonic measurement of the fingertip, which is much harder to dupe. So which of these is it? I would suspect, and there's no no technical information on the net about this, but I would suspect it's the capacitance one, uh, because you've got to get it in such a small space. This is 0.75 of a millimetre, so that's got to have both the reader and all the electronics behind it and all the wiring, etc. So security, yes, it's likely to be much more secure than a pin. Okay, and, you know, cost-effective, how much does it add to the cost, say, of operating a card? Again, they don't know yet because these okay. are really small trials. But if you take a standard card, it's about 10 or 20 cents to manufacture in big volumes. If you take it with a chip in as well, it's $1 to $2. 
So it's going to be more than that. But the cost of actually distributing the card and the pin and everything else by the bank to people like us is a multiple again. So the card cost is likely to be more. It comes down to whether it's worth it for somebody. Now, is it for the people who forget their pins or perhaps some sort of have some issue with remembering pins? Chris, do you, do you remember your pin? I struggle because I've got so many cards, like passwords, because we've got to the point now where we've made passwords so uber complicated with 15 different types of, of, of special character, plus a number, plus a capital letter, a lock of your mother's hair and a DNA sample all wound into your password. You can't remember any of them. So what do you do? You write them down. Exactly. But the point I was going to make about cards, is this fingerprint business a, a sort of solution to a problem that we really haven't really got anymore because are cards really going to be around? Do you see a long-term future well, of cards? Because everyone's paying with phones and things. Exactly. Days, and in they? fact, as you know, on this programme before, I, I have an Apple Watch. And because Apple have done a deal, in the same way that Google will have done a deal, I can spend several hundred pounds on my wrist. I'd use cash probably once every five or six weeks. I use my card only when it's, say, in one of the big supermarkets around here, only to get stuck at the £30 limit. So otherwise, I don't. I think it's more going to be used for people who do have a problem with remembering pins. So I think that will actually work. But how big is that subset of the population? And, you know, if it's related to age, they, they obviously get older and use less. So if you take the sort of millennial going through, it may not be needed. So I think it's probably, and this may be very unfair on the manufacturer, probably a piece of tech that are trying to see if there's a market. And you said that it's going to be a small trial. So when is this coming and it's where? It's coming in the next two or three weeks, I think, in the UK. Uh, but it has been trialled around the world. So they're obviously trialling it out. But it's not, I don't think, I think the tech probably works. It's whether the market, i.e. us, want to adopt it. Well, Peter Cowley, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Actually, Peter, I can quiz you about something. Because it's not about credit cards, but, but it's actually about food. But how much food have you thrown away, do you think, this week? This week, well, because I eat out so much, I don't know the answer. <laughs> oh, you're a bad you person to ask. Well, no, the, it's it's a serious question because if if my fridge is anything to go by. I'd say a huge amount. Were you the same as you? Yeah, I had some questionable celery in my fridge and definitely leftovers that I have every good intention of using and then they just end up in the bin. Yeah, I'm as bad as the next person. Apparently the, the amount around the world of wasted food we buy with the best intentions and then don't use is criminal, mm. really. Yeah. But thankfully, scientists in Australia reckon they've got the answer. And just to backtrack slightly, the reason we throw food away, of course, is usually because those tasty-looking fruits and vegetables that we picked up cheap at the supermarket last week have since turned into miniature mould factories. Now, the reason that actually happens is that microbes are everywhere. So everything you buy is naturally covered in them, and they very much like to eat your strawberries every bit as much as you do. But at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia, Kirsty Bayliss has found a way to use just room air and electricity to make perishable food items last for weeks. The FAO, Food and Agricultural Organisation, say that globally 30% of all food is lost or wasted, which is equivalent to 1.3 billion tonnes. And a large part of that occurs at what we call the post-harvest stage. So it's after it's left the farm and before it reaches the consumer or even at the stage of the consumer. Some figures I've seen suggest that even in households, people are buying stuff, they put it in the fridge and then they just grow it as a mould culture and then they just put it in the bin. I mean, a lot of that waste actually happens because people overbuy. That's exactly it. Um, so for produce like avocados, people take them home, they turn black, they go, oh, I'm not eating that, and they throw it in the bin. Same with strawberries. You have them for a couple of days, they start to grow that grey fluff, oh, I'm not eating that, gets thrown in the bin. So that's what we wanted to address. How do we actually stop that mould growing and reduce the amount of food waste that's occurring? So 
we've developed a technology which we call cold plasma or cold lightning and it actually stops that mould occurring. Completely? Completely. How does it work? Cold plasma is an ionised gas. If you think back to your high school science days, it's the fourth state of matter and we produce it by applying an electrical current to a gas. The gas that we use is just the air that we breathe and when we produce the plasma, it leaves a coating over the surface of the fruit and vegetables. So it's little reactive ions, electrons, reactive oxygen and nitrogen species and all of those things together are antimicrobial. So they actually stop the spores that are in the mould from germinating. And if they don't germinate, they can't infect the food. So you basically apply a strong electric field to some air, strip off the electrons from some of the molecules that are in there. So you you end up with this plasma. This then, you, you pass that over the food, decorates the surface of the food, and then you've protected the surface so that if there is anything resident on there from the air, fungus bacteria, whatever, it will be killed. That's right. So those, all those little electrons and ions and things that are produced in the plasma, they directly attack any mould that is on that food. And it can be mould, so that's the fungal pathogens, but it can also be bacteria and also viruses as well. Why does it attack the microbes but it doesn't attack the food? Yeah, that's interesting. That's the real science behind it. So that's something we want to look into. We actually do think it has an effect on the food, particularly on fresh produce. And we actually think what it might be doing is boosting the immune response of the fruit and vegetables. So there's actually a twofold effect there. So that's one of the stages of research that we'd like to do next to actually look at the science behind that and confirm that theory. And it doesn't actually affect the flavour and it doesn't affect the integrity or the safety of the food item. No, that's correct. So we've had in our lab avocados, strawberries, we're doing mangoes, citrus and corn at the moment. After we've treated them, we have a row of students lining up to test these. Students always like free food. Um, But it hasn't changed the taste. We've also looked at things like the firmness of the fruit. So we look at whether whether it's softening or anything like that, but it's all unaffected. The colour doesn't um, change. The weight of the fruit doesn't change either. So that's a major benefit. It's, it's not impacting on the actual quality or taste of the fruit either. So if I took an average strawberry or an average avocado, both of which I love very much, but also so does the fungus trying to grow my fridge based on what I threw away last week, how much longer would that last in my fridge after it's been treated via your technique compared with if I just took the same batch of strawberries and put them straight in my refrigerator? Okay, so... Avocados has been our biggest achievement. When we've treated the avocados with plasma, normally they would last around about five days. If you're lucky, we've had them about three weeks old and they're still nice and fresh. There's a bit of variation there, but to extend that shelf life by three weeks is a huge achievement and the growers are really excited about that. I'm not surprised because, of course, that means they're going to sell (laughs) a lot more produce, isn't it? I mean, in, in financial terms, how much do you think you can save the market? Yeah, there hasn't actually been a lot done on that, but there is a figure that says for every dollar spent on reducing food waste, there is a 14-fold return. So that's that's in general for whatever treatment it is. Um, so that's sort of what we're, we're hoping to achieve by doing it with plasma. Now, is this scalable? Because when you've got literally millions of tonnes of food flowing to consumers... Is it feasible to subject it to plasma treatment using the technique you've developed? 
In the next six months, what we want to do is actually test it in the pack house. So we're working with a local avocado grower and we're going to go into his pack house and look at where we can apply it on the conveyor belt. So as the avocados come in out of the orchard, we're looking at can we apply the plasma across the conveyor belt or do we even apply it in water when they wash the avocados? So that will confirm that we can actually scale it up out of the lab. There's no reason why it won't work. We're just going to confirm it. If it does work, I'm going to have some very disappointed fungus in my fridge, I can tell you. That was Kirsty Bayliss. She's at Murdoch University in Perth, WA. And if you'd like to find out more about any of the stories we've covered this week, all the transcripts and the papers can be found on our website, thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Now, whatever you're doing right now, and with the possible exception of driving, just stop for a second and take a look at how many different materials you can see around you. Well, around me, I've got plastic microphone mountings, I've got a wooden table, metal hinges, I can see LCD screens, glass windows. But where do these materials come from? How are they developed? And what new materials will we have in the future? This week, from the blacksmith forge to 3D printing, we're exploring the cutting edge of material science. And speaking of blacksmiths, one of their roles in days gone by was making weapons and armour from steel. And although the blacksmiths didn't realise it, when they were beating a piece of metal, they were actually driving atoms of carbon from their forges into the crystal structure of the iron and in the process turning it into very hard steel. Jack Tavener went to speak with Magnus Sigurdsson, who still makes swords and other historical implements the way that traditional metal workers have been doing for centuries. Swords and armour were our best friend for thousands of years, both weapons of war and means to protect families and possessions. And though we may not use swords any longer, modern armour and blades are still very relevant, and they were all made with steel, a metal that can be shaped into almost anything. Now, safe to say, it's pretty hard to find a local blacksmith these days, but Magnus Sigurdsson is one of only a few people in the UK who can make traditional swords, daggers, armour, you name it. I went to meet him at his forge and he showed me the traditional method of making a blade. To start, we simply needed the all-important piece of steel. Iron is incredibly difficult to harden. Uh, if you turn it into steel, which is just actually iron and carbon, and yet you can vary the amount of carbon and the different types of heat process, it can be used for most things, from making cooking pots to decent blades to suits of armour. The other thing, of course, is iron ore is a lot more common and copper and tin so it's easier it's more available it's more out there a lot of positives to using steel then but it's reliant on the carbon content within the iron to make it hard to understand how carbon does this imagine a cup of tea and adding a sugar cube creating a solution where the sugar particles are evenly dissolved throughout the carbon in the steel is just like the sugar in the tea the carbon fits in the gaps of the iron's crystal structure preventing the crystals from moving and increasing the hardness of the whole material. It's difficult in that time because of the smelting process to get good quality steel that's high carbon content all the way through, a homogenous piece of steel with good quality mm -hmm. carbon all the way through, you know, sort of evenly dispersed. So you can control it to a limited extent on a charcoal-powered forge by just heating it through and stacking it 
you get to a temperature before the carbon is burnt out that it'll absorb carbon. If it's in basically a stack with almost no oxygen mm -hmm. at the right temperature, it will absorb the carbon before it burns it out. So that's so the can, point. You bury it in all this charcoal. Yep, heat all, it up nice and slowly. All the carbon transfers, and then that's what gives you that hardness. That yeah, you're I mean, on. this is the way they would have done it, you know, through the medieval period. The forge was already lit, so we stoked up the heat using bellows that filled an entire room next door to blow air through the fire and crank up the flames until they glowed a bright bluey purple colour. Magnus buried our bar of steel into a ferocious charcoal fire at 1,300 degrees Celsius. Temperatures this high caused the steel to glow bright orange and become soft, so that it could be worked into the shape of our blade. He pulled it out of the fire and started beating it with a hammer over his anvil. That's right, that large chunk of metal often dropped from the sky in the cartoons. And this continuous bashing has a lot of benefits. It's moving it into a different shape. It's also refining the structure of the steel as you work it. So it's making the structure finer, so you're actually improving the quality of the steel. What you're doing here is making the crystal smaller and finer. So you've got a smaller and finer grain structure. You're also working by the feel of the metal and the sound. I hit where it's colder, it rings more. I hit where it's hotter, duller sound. So you can actually feel by how it's responding, how it's working. Everybody thinks it's actually the hammer that's doing a lot of the work, but you're actually using the anvil to keep the surface smooth and get rid of the hammer marks. As you can see now, it's really lost colour very, very quickly. If the steel's got a fair amount of carbon in, you don't want to work it cold, it will crack the steel. And so, it was back into the flames of the forge, then reheat the steel, bash it some more, and essentially repeat the process until you've got a sharp edge. You prefer to refine most of it on the forge and in the forge on the anvil and not grind it because, again, I'm not wasting steel, which they wouldn't have done years and years ago because steel was way too expensive to just grind most of it off. And I feel you get a better quality product. You know, as I said, you're refining the structure of the steel all the way through. So why just grind most of it away? How do they know how to make all these different materials? Trial, error inspired guesswork at the time they weren't sort of sticking all this under an electron microscope and looking at the structure and things like that and what they found worked they stuck with and there were sort of rituals that each blacksmith would have water or his brine at a certain temperature because that worked for him and everything else i mean if he had an amazing day and did everything perfectly well and he tripped over the step coming in the forge in that morning he would then try and make that part of the ritual <laughs> We know in a lot of cases they carried on using processes where only one bit of the process gave them what they wanted, but because they discovered it by using the other processes, they kept the other processes in. I mean, how was iron, bronze first produced? Um, it wasn't a bunch of people sitting by a campfire noticing that they'd melted metal. So you start off with the copper period. Copper's mined very closely to arsenic if you've got any arsenic in the smelt with the copper you get bronze the first bronzes were not copper and tin they were copper and arsenic which was really good mm. for everybody <laughs> hmm maybe not poison aside it was then time to dunk our blade into some water otherwise known as quenching what this has done is suddenly cause all the vibrating particles to actually lock solid. You're trying to get hard and tough. You get hard, it snaps. Tough is slightly softer. So you actually run through several heat cycles to actually get the effect you want. 
and it's called tempering where you heat it up, quench it and let heat back into the blade and different heats and tempering processes give you different qualities in different types of steel. Okay, so you're trying to make, I guess, a, a hard edge on the blade but not so that it snaps it like a, a ruler or something yeah. very easy. If you bend it too much, it breaks. You wouldn't it, want that on the battlefield. It's, no, it's, it's a fine line. You've got to work out what you need for what we'd call a working edge. You know, what is this tall weapon going to be used for? And use a heat process that will give you, if not exactly what you want, as close as physically possibly can mm-hmm. be achieved with the materials you've got. Some cutting-edge metallurgy, no less. Blacksmith Magnus Sigerson there speaking with Jack Taverner. Now, Magnus lent Jack one of the swords that he made recently, and so Jack took it off to a metallurgist for a closer look. Stay tuned to hear the verdict later on in the programme. Now, that's one way of making something, but technology now lets us go further. We can 3D print objects with great precision and control their all-important structure. Jess Wade is here from Imperial College. So, Jess, you've got something with you. What? What is that? Yeah, it's kind of a bizarre pair of 3D printed pliers, I would say, that I um, seem to have deformed with my enthusiasm to play with it. <laughs> they were functioning earlier. So it's almost as if someone's done an outline of traditional pliers, but actually it's all one bit there's there's no screws in there whatsoever exactly so it's something called computer-aided design so you draw out your structure on a computer and you basically print it like you print at home anyway but instead of an ink cartridge you've kind of got a plastic filament and then you direct that onto some kind of substrate and you end up with this 3d printed form of, of flyers for the, uh, yeah. <laughs> pliers not flyers and as you mentioned you can kind of impart a huge amount of strength by being clever about the way that you design it clever about the way that you print it so the kind of axis that you printed a Along and clever about these funny little structures that you have inside it to kind of give it extra strength, maybe a kind of honeycomb structure on the inside so that it's more robust. So a usual pair of pliers, you've almost got two bits of metal and right in the middle you've got a screw and that's what gives it their functionality. Here, where you would expect a screw, we've got this nice little mesh which is different from the structure of the rest of the printed material and that's what's actually able to make it move in the way that we would expect it to. Exactly, so you just have to be a bit clever in the way that you design it so you can impart the functionality later but I guess that that's where we're going with with materials now in general we're thinking much more about the way that we fabricate them and engineer them to give them some special properties that they didn't have before. Why is it so different to be using the structure and shape of materials in this way? Because I think for a long time and certainly kind of coming off the back of that description that we had before, thinking about the way that we used to make kind of swords and everything like that, we had materials and we took them and made them smaller. We went from the top and worked down and now we can go from the bottom and work upwards and we can really think about what functionality we want that material to have and then design it at a really atomic level to give it those properties. So the kind of fantastic, mysterious science fiction ones are these metamaterials where you can create structures where the spacing between individual elements is less than the wavelength of a light that you want to look at. And when you do that, you can give it these really bizarre physics properties where you can start playing not only with the kind of electric field of a light wave that we usually play around with with a normal material, but also the magnetic field. So you can do such crazy things if you engineer at such a such a tiny scale that actually it's really exciting both as a challenge for physicists, but also in thinking about the ways that we can use them in modern life. And I think now that materials in general, whether it's something for physics and maybe people who listen to this radio program have heard of this idea of kind of optical cloaking and and invisibility cloaks. 
But now people are thinking about the way that we could put it into the, the materials that we use every day. So going towards wearable technology, but much more thinking about the functionality of fabrics. And I think that's a really exciting area of science too. Now you sort of threw that in there, an invisibility cloak. We started off with a pair of pliers. So this is obviously looking at that structure. So what are some of those new applications of new materials that are closely linked to their structure? So the invisibility cloak is is an interesting one, right? This is where you are taking individual elements and spacing them, like I said, less than the wavelength of light. And when you create these kind of structures, you can have materials that don't just do the normal things we're used to, like absorbed and reflect light. We're happy with that. That's what, you know, most things do. That's how we see that they're there. But you can have materials that actually force light to bend around their structure. And this is this idea of the invisibility cloak, that if you had the right spacing in the material that you fabricated, light would be kind of navigated around the edges of whatever you'd created so that you'd be able to see as if it wasn't there, as if you're just looking straight through it. The applications, not only, you know, Harry Potter style, but they're also ones you could use it in surgery to be able to let people see beyond an organ or something like that and see around it. I think the more exciting ones for me are ones where people are kind of, I mentioned it a bit, but embedding them into, into clothing. I met an incredible designer who is at the Royal College of Art and the Helen Hamlin Centre for Design, and she's called Laura Salisbury and she's creating this knitwear that is designed to rehabilitate people who have suffered from stroke so it's designed to stimulate things inside your arms or wherever you need it so that you can rehab faster and I just think that's the neatest thing ever I also met a phenomenal researcher from South Korea called Mi Jung Lee who is looking at ways that you can create memory from woven fabrics so you have each piece of thread as if it's an electrode and you can create kind of volatile memory systems which is just incredible so it's taking Taking materials that we can now impart some functionality into in a flexible way. And it's saying this is what we've been doing for a really long time. And actually, we can solve new problems now with these materials. And I think it's so exciting. Is this the future then of wearable material technology? I mean, how close is it to reality? And how soon could we be seeing things like that? I think we're completely there at reality. I think right now it's pretty niche to take these materials, whether it's kind of for sports rehab or because you want to have some kind of memory system in in your shirt sleeve. But I think we're completely there scientifically scientifically and we just need better interaction with designers and scientists to make it happen completely every day well jess wade thank you very much that's jess wade from imperial college you're listening to the naked scientist with chris smith and me izzy clark still to come where do lost socks go in the wash Before we come to that very crucial question, though, this week we are discussing the past, the present and the future of materials. And earlier on in the programme, Jack Taverner was with blacksmith Magnus Sigurdsson at his forge. Now, Magnus kindly lent us a beautiful Japanese blade that he's made. It's called a katana. And so Jack took that to the material science department at the University of Cambridge to show it to steel specialist Harry Badisha. Making something like this takes enormous individual skill. The skills would have been developed over generations, really. But this is made from a single material. This would be steel, and it would have a carbon concentration, perhaps about 0.58%. Is Uh, that a lot of carbon? It's a lot of carbon compared with, say, structural steels, because this does not need to be joined. If you put too much carbon, you can't actually weld the material. This will contain millions and millions of crystals, with carbon being forced into those crystals by this rapid cooling. And that's what traps them in. That's what traps them in. It's only in the modern era that we've come to understand why the techniques the blacksmiths have developed over thousands of years actually work. It's all to do with how the atoms in the material are arranged and what other atoms are present too. 
In the case of steel in our sword blade, a smattering of carbon atoms in the right places makes the material much stronger than the iron on its own. But rather than just understanding the properties of the materials we have already, metallurgists like Harry are also trying to design new, even more resilient materials by modelling the all-important crystal structure of the metal in a computer. You might use computer modelling to get the best possible way of forging the steel. Because forging is used for many critical components. The discs that go into jet aircraft, which hold the blades, those are called critical components. That means if they fail, you might bring the aircraft down. You have to be very careful of how you forge it and get the right structure inside that disc in order to avoid that problem. And it's also not to say that computer models always work because the subject is incredibly complicated and we are continuously trying to make better and better methods of modelling materials. But we are not there yet. Nevertheless, this approach has enabled Harry and his team to develop some extremely effective new materials. He pointed out a sheet of dark grey metal, roughly the size of a computer monitor, that is just 5mm thick but still capable of stopping a bullet in its tracks. Surprisingly, it's also not a solid sheet. It's covered in a regular pattern of tiny oval-shaped holes known as perforations, and the material itself is a form of steel the team have engineered called superbainite. It's special because the production process means that the metal forms billions of tiny crystals a tenth of the size found in normal steels, and this is key to its strength. There are so many boundaries between crystals that if I add up the area of the boundaries, it's about 100 million square metres per cubic metre. That is a very, very large density of boundaries between crystals. Now, why is that important? Because the boundaries strengthen the material. So this has a a strength of about 2.5 gigapascals, which is like putting 2.5 billion apples on one square metre. It's incredibly strong. When you make things strong, they are not particularly tough. That means they can't absorb too much energy. So, you know, if you fire a projectile at it, it will defeat the projectile, but there'll be too many cracks. So what we do is we put systematic perforations inside the steel, which have two purposes. One is that the edges of those holes, they help to deflect or destroy the projectile because they are sharp edges. The second is that because these perforations are smooth, if a crack forms, then it's blunted by them. If you look at this object, it's had multiple hits, and yet the whole piece of armor is still integral. And of course, it leads to a reduction in weight, which is a good thing if it's on a vehicle. It may seem counterintuitive, but the perforations improve the performance of the material when hit, with the bonus of also making it lighter. The super bainite provides the strength. The perforated design provides the toughness to prevent it cracking. In other words, it is a material design that enhances the properties further than what the material can do alone. Harry then showed me how changing the design of the common steel beams we have in all our buildings could lead to them being built for better fire safety. The cross-section of a beam is what you would see if you were to take a slice anywhere along its length. It is this shape that his team have redesigned. Now, buildings, uh, the frames are made from beams, and normally they're called I-beams because they're shaped like a capital I. They're the things you see on a construction site, cranes like lifting into position, those sort of beams. That's exactly, about. yeah. But notice this is not uh, shaped like an I because the web at the top is smaller than the web at the bottom. If you imagine a capital I, the webs of the beam are the flat lines that sit on the top and bottom. 
Usually they'd be the same size, but in Harry's design, the top one is made smaller than the bottom. The important thing about this is that the top web is smaller than the lower web. And the reason is we wanted to actually put the floor in between these two instead of on top. So rather than resting the floor on the top web of the I-beam, in Harry's design the floor slots into spaces on the sides of the beam, the vertical part of the eye, meaning the top can be much smaller and lighter. But there's another major advantage, fireproofing. Steel softens when it gets hot, so building designers currently have to cram large amounts of insulation into the spaces around the beam to prevent it melting. Harry's design means you can use the floor itself as the insulator. Normally you put a lot of fire protection on these beams so that if the building catches fire, you have one hour before it collapses. So if you remember the um, attacks in the USA, the Twin Towers, Twin Towers, they collapsed almost after one hour. So you can remove the fire protection from this area where the floor slots in and you save height. Yeah, so, so it's integrated can... into one. The floor actually protects the steel from melting. That's Correct. The... And, and this uh, new concept of fire protection actually is effective. It's ingenious stuff, isn't it? Harry Badisha there from the University of Cambridge. So what else does the future hold for materials science? Well, with a rising world population placing increasing pressure on our resources, a major priority is to produce materials sustainably and also make the most efficient use that we can of what we already have. Now, this is called a circular economy, and it's a concept that Alicia Garmelovich has been looking at in some detail. She's at the University of Santiago in Chile. So, Alicia, first of all, what actually is a circular economy as it applies to materials? Can you give us some examples? That's a great question. So it's usually thought of in terms of two major cycles. One is the biological cycle. So on the one hand, we're looking at materials that can actually enter back into the biosphere and be returned and actually regenerated on the basis of natural systems. And then another cycle is technical materials. So those materials that don't very well go back into the biosphere, but we need to then engineer ways to return those back into useful purposes for, for our human industry. So in terms of the material cycles, it's usually broken up into those two sections. So at the moment, for example, I get some oil out of the ground, I turn it into a plastic bag. This is a very bad example of a circular economy because it's a one-way street. I've made the bag, it's going to sit there in landfill for potentially thousands of years. Precisely. Yes. So that's a good example of the linear economy that we have now and and the problems underpinning it. So you're advocating some kind of rational design of something, a better bag, if you like. That means that whatever we, we start with a different starting material or we engineer in some kind of recyclability from the get-go. Exactly. Um, we need to think about regeneration as the kind of guiding principle. And one of the major things that my work focuses on is reimagining where that takes place, the scope and scale. So one of the things that is currently in the discourse of the circular economy is the idea of cycling. That's kind of implicit in the concept. But what is the kind of next generation, I think, of work in this area is looking looking at what appropriate scale can we make the materials and return them back. So if you look at natural ecosystems, you look at how materials, actual molecules get absorbed into the organisms that then build habitat, etc. But that's usually at nested quite local and regional scales in terms of the cycling. What we do now is we dig up minerals from mines or petrochemicals from large, large deposits and then create huge global supply chains in order to actually transport those materials around the world. 
The problem is, is that you then have centralized material production and distributed waste. And when you think about that as an issue of trying to pipe that back into all that distributed bits of waste back into a centralized production system, it's incredibly uneconomic and very difficult. So one of the ideas is decentralizing that type of um, material supply chain into more nested nutrient networks. I mean, that's true of of economies and industries all over the world, isn't it? Because I was shocked a few years ago when I learned that the prawns I cooked for dinner one evening had been caught on one side of the Atlantic, shipped all the way to Thailand, shelled on the ship, cooked out there and brought back for me to eat. So those prawns had travelled further in their lifetime than I have, probably, (laughs) around the planet. And you think of the carbon cost of that. But it's not trivial then, is it? Because the whole world economy is geared up around making stuff at scale and they're moving it round to, to an end user. So what you're advocating is a massive, massive overhaul of, of how we make stuff and use stuff. Precisely. And I think it's a really good analogy to look at food systems, that there's really good logic for more regional and local supplies for, for reasons and also energy. So, you know, the, the kind of renewable revolution that's happening right now is a look at, you know, it's starting from the premise of what is around you, what makes sense to be adaptive in this place that we live in. And the next step for that is materials. And you point out quite right that it's a huge revolution in the way things are done. However, there are seeds of change that are out there right now. Um, For example, in the digital fabrication space where fab labs and maker spaces and local communities of production are popping up everywhere, that gives hope for a more decentralized or distributed manufacturing landscape that currently is, you know, in the wings, so to speak, but could be a harbinger for a more greater future transformation in that sense. But um, I, I get what you're saying. The thing is that if you look at, say, computers, mobile devices, they're all mass manufactured in China and they're travelling enormous distances. Some of the materials travel enormous distances, but they're also being made where those materials are in abundance. Now, we're not just going to wean the entire world off overnight of, of having a laptop and an iPhone, are we? So there, there are going to be some things that presumably are are not amenable to doing this, that there are going to have to be exceptions. I think that's true. And I I think you have to look at the kind of volume of materials that we want to focus on in terms of making that change to begin with. We focus a lot on plastics. Um, We focus a lot on materials that can be sourced from abundant sources of nutrients from biomass. So, for example, cellulosic, lignocellulosic materials that are the building blocks for trees and all plant matter, basically, that's highly distributed and abundant all over the world. As well as, for example, we're doing a lot of work on making algae-based bioplastics. Agar is a biopolymer that you can make from algae, but that is actually common to a phylum called red algae, which contains about over 4,000 species that is highly distributed around the world. So the idea that you can actually make and fabricate functional plastics pretty much anywhere on the planet is the vision that we see as, as completely possible. The other aspect is that you, when you combine that with technology that's highly participatory in terms of using green chemistry methods that's low heat and low pressure. Basically, the plastics we're making, you can make in your kitchen or at least in a small lab. That's the kind of technology that allows more people in more places to participate in this new materials economy. It just seems amazing that we've spent all of our history scaling things up and working out how to make bigger things and get them to places faster. And now we're bringing it all back to home and making it local again making it artisan almost. It's it's extraordinary. I think that's an interesting trend. I think that on the one hand, you have things that will be large in scale and then other things that will be small scale. It's one more of the question is what's the appropriate scale for the type of material and type of production that we want. 
Alicia, thank you very much. That's Alicia Garmelovic, and she is from the University of Santiago in Chile. Thanks also to our other guests this week, Magnus Sigurdsson, Harry Badisha and Jess Wade. And thank you very much to Jack Tavener, who helped to put the programme together. We hope very much you have enjoyed our romp through the world of materials and that actually you realise that maybe materials are more than just what they're made of when you look at them. And to finish, it's time for Question of the Week. Hi, this is Hani Sakharin from Israel. My socks never stay together in the wash. One always disappears. Is there a scientific explanation for where those socks go? And why are they so unhappy in monogamous relationships? I can completely relate. I'm particularly bad at losing socks. And even if a matching pair make it to the washing machine, I'm often only left with one after a spin. But why? On the Naked Scientist Forum, Chiral SPO says, Personally, I blame entropy. That's when, over time, a system becomes more disordered. Whilst Colin2b says... It's well known that in the presence of washing powder in a controlled environment, a pair of socks will decay into a single sock and a lump of fluff. Over to Rob Easterway, mathematician and author of How Many Socks Make a Pair. The reason why socks disappear is down to the scientific principle known as Murphy's Law. Essentially, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. It turns out that it's statistically likely that even if you start with socks in pairs, you will lose some and end up with numerous odd socks. Let's suppose you have four pairs of socks, red, blue, green and white. And let's also assume that every time you wash your socks, the machine randomly loses one of them. This actually happens. Our washing machines are also sock-munching monsters. Small items can slip through that thick rubber ring that creates a tight seal when the front door closes. But let's get back to Rob to crunch the numbers. Given that you start with four pairs, the first sock that the machine loses, let's say it's a red sock, is 100% certain to leave you with an odd sock. Now you have seven socks left, that means that six of the seven remaining socks are in a pair, so there's a six in seven chance that the next sock that's lost will form an odd sock. So already, after two washes, there's an 85% chance that you've created two odd socks. And it goes on. After the third wash, with four of the six remaining socks still in a pair, there's a four out of six or two-thirds chance that this third lost sock will also create an odd sock. In other words, after three washes, there's a higher than 50% chance that you'll now have three odd socks. The more different pairs of socks you start with, the higher the odds of producing odd socks becomes. Luckily, Rob has a tip for solving this problem and fighting the odds. Always buy socks that are one colour. You'll still lose socks at the same rate, but this time you won't notice it's happening. Oh, that'll solve it. Thanks, Rob. Next time, we're digging for an answer to Aidan's glowing question. Hi, this is Aidan from Portland, Oregon, and here's my question. I've heard that consuming orange carrots in high excess can turn your skin orange because of the beta carotene. But what about purple carrots? Can you help that colourful conundrum? Email your vegetable-inspired musings to chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Naked Scientist, or join in the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Hello, Adam here. Do you want to see The Naked Scientist live at the Edinburgh Science Festival? We're recording our podcast fully clothed, in front of a live audience on Sunday the 7th of April and want you to be there. To grab your tickets, head to sciencefestival.co.uk and search for The Naked Scientists.
And that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. And do join us at the same time next week to hear us say hello tomorrow because we've been to Paris to see some of the new technologies that are about to burst onto the world stage and change our lives, ranging from kites that generate electricity to noise-cancelling windows and a universal test for cancer. I hope you can join us. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.